This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Maybe we'd start out by, before we get into the ethereal world of consciousness, um, I'd love to briefly talk about your background as a non-scientist with a very science-adjacent, science-entangled career. Mm-hmm. What brought you to this topic? <laughs> um, well, yes. Yeah, so I've, I've always been interested in the sciences. Um, I actually really wanted to study physics um, and came to a point uh, early on in uh, university where I had been studying dance my whole life. We were just talking about this um, and had to make a choice. And I felt like too much to take on um, a double major in physics and dance. And so I realized that was the one opportunity I had to, to follow that dream. So I did. Um, but I, I continued to stay interested and continued to read um, a lot of the books that I ended up editing, um, the types of books I ended up editing. Um, so Uh, In my 20s, I started working for scientists who write for the general public, um, mostly as an editor and ghostwriter. Um, And that was about 15 years ago that I started doing that work. Um, So I've mostly worked with neuroscientists and physicists um, to help make their work more accessible to the general public. And that mostly entailed editing and ghostwriting, but um, was also some coaching for talks like TED Talks and um, anything to make their work more accessible. And at the core of your work, there's, I feel like there's a sense that there's something inherently valid and valuable about challenging intuitions. Um, would you like to talk about that sure. a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's basically what, what my book is about on the topic that has been a lifelong fascination of mine, consciousness. Um, so my book is about the, the science and philosophy of consciousness. Um, and it focuses on what makes consciousness so mysterious and why it's so difficult for scientists to study. Um, and it, it, I take the reader through what I think are some of the most interesting theories and research in consciousness studies. Um, but the main goal from the outset, um, I make this clear from, from the first page, um, that the, the main goal is really to kind of um, probe and challenge our intuitions um, about consciousness. And I actually see this in, in two categories. We were going over a little bit of this um, before we got here, that there are really two categories of intuitions and illusions that um, I think pertain to consciousness. And one is just our intuitions about consciousness itself. Um, so what we think the purpose of it is, what we think it's doing, um, what its function is, um, those intuitions. And then there's another category of intuitions, which are more about other areas of our lives, but um, which really inform our thinking um, and form our other intuitions about consciousness. Um, and so, yes, so this is Challenging intuitions is something that I think is a very important part of the scientific process. And I I love the way the book begins. I mean, this is something you've been doing since you were a kid. Um, You you talk about at the very, very beginning 
of thinking that this thing is a sphere, not a flat. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit yeah, because I think there's something very powerful in yeah, that. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it's it's really just tapping into the experience of awe, but it is it is more specific, challenging intuition. So um, I used to, so I think once I learned that, um, that the earth is a sphere and that we're situated the way that we are um, in the universe and that gravity is holding us to the earth, and it, it suddenly occurred to me that... Um, the intuition, this feeling, this everyday feeling we have of being down on the ground with the sky above us, this kind of down below and above, um, was actually not an accurate representation of, of our reality, right? We're, we're actually on the side of a sphere, um, kind of stuck to it <laughs> in this way. And I realized that if I could, if I would lie down on the ground, kind of outstretch um, my arms and legs outstretched and just kind of let my weight fall and look, if I kind of like extended my view a little bit, I could shake myself out of that everyday intuition and kind of get a sense of being held onto this sphere by gravity. Um, and yeah, I think there's, there's something very interesting and something very scientific about finding out which intuitions are misleading us yes. um, and breaking through them so that we can actually get a feel for a deeper truth. And there is absolutely nothing that I can think of that our senses and intuitions shriek less loudly mm-hmm. than that there is a consensus direction called down. Right. And this thing is flat, and there's down and there's up. I mean, that is the most overwhelmingly evident thing to us as sensing creatures with intuitions in a non-scientific state. Well, and it was truly one of the first scientific breakthroughs, yeah. right? It was we, we had to encounter a lot of evidence before we would we could accept that as fact. Imagine how violating of intuitions that evidence was as it started to accrue back in the time of Archimedes or whatever, but it, you, you've made the point in other conversations that it's when intuitions get violated in that manner. You know, like the germ theory, have, you have a bunch yeah. of examples. Yeah, there's the germ theory of diseases one you and I have, have discussed before. Um, yeah, the idea that these microscopic things that we can't touch or feel or hear, that we have no um, way to get access to through our through our senses um, in an everyday sense, the idea that they can cause illness, can kill us, these invisible things can kill us. Um, it sounds kind of silly to say now because we've absorbed that intuition breaking fact into our, um, it's kind of shifted our intuitions even culturally. Um, but yeah, when, when human beings first discovered this, it, there was a long, there's always, there seems to always be this period of time where we're wrestling with our intuitions when we um, make scientific progress that that counters our intuitions. Um, I think it's natural and and, a, and a, um, it's good for us to to check our intuitions when we're when we get this evidence that feels very wrong to us. We have to kind of go back and say, wait a minute, that that can't be right. And then we we gather more evidence. But at some point, the evidence is overwhelming, and you realize your intuitions were wrong. And I think it's really also a, a very good exercise to look backward in that way in scientific history and say there was a time when the notion of the earth being round would have seemed patently absurd to absolutely everybody. And then there was this time, this unsettling period, probably of centuries, when the evidence started man- mounting. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, the whatever theory of disease there used to be, it certainly wasn't invisible microbes causing this. And the evidence started to mounting. We're starting, we're entering that kind of a period, or we've been in that kind of period for you know, at least a you know close to a century with consciousness, where something is weird, which right, we're, we're about right. to get to. Yeah. But the other thing, before we leave your childhood, mm-hmm. the other thing that I find fascinating about it and germane to this is you started probing 
at the foundations of consciousness because of, to some extent, because of migraines that you were having yeah. as a kid as well, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I started getting migraines when I was eight years old. Um, and sometimes they were just completely debilitating. Um, and I had medications that sometimes worked, sometimes weren't as effective, and sometimes I just didn't didn't have them. Um, and I, I've now realized as an adult who I, I teach meditation to children and I'm, I'm around children a lot since I have children. Um, I realize this isn't so uncommon, actually, that when children have an experience of intense pain, um, they will ha- start to have um, s- some of these insights. Um, or even just getting curious um, be- when there's nothing else. And this, I'm sure this happens to adults as well. Um, when you're stuck with an experience that is so overwhelming um, and so difficult to tolerate, you can notice that getting curious about what you're experiencing gives this ever so slight relief, amount of relief, um, that was both kind of a a psychological insight and an insight that led me also to become very interested in meditation, um, but also it just makes you very awake to the fact that we are having an experience. Um, and I just was, became interested, um, from and that And you got a modicum on. of relief from that, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. say, you know, overwhelming relief, <laughs> it but yeah, it wasn't the same as coding, but, um, no, you can, and <laughs> what is, after and all? even, yeah. you know, when you're in that kind of pain, when just a slight shift, um, makes that much of a difference it 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 it, it did it became a trick that i used that gives um, you a sense of agency i'm sure oh yeah interesting yeah. Mm-hmm. um so we have these deep roots in you know interest about challenging intuitions and you know about sort of understanding experience um what was the trajectory from that we're now going to cover a light, large span of time up uh, to this book that you've just written what deepened your your fascination with consciousness and particularly with the notion that a lot of scientists you found were in the closet about. Mm. Um, yeah, so I so I started working with, with neuroscientists um, primarily uh, when I was doing my, my editing work and, and coaching. And I, I, at the same time, I'd always been interested. Um, so you know, from the time I was in high school and college, I was reading philosophy on this subject, but I started becoming more educated in the neuroscience as I was working with neuroscientists. Um, And my thinking started shifting um, over the course of 12 or 15 years. Um, And I found myself, just um, as we were talking about and as my book is about, thinking it would be interesting to really get deep in challenging our most fundamental intuitions about consciousness um, because we seem to be so stuck at this point. And, um, you know, like, like I've said, often a scientific breakthrough comes out of being able to think about something in a totally new way. And that usually involves challenging intuition. So I started just doing this for myself. And actually, I started writing my book. Um, I think you were one of the first to read a very early draft before it was even a book when I was really just writing for myself because I was using writing to to help myself figure out, um, to help my, to, to kind of think through um, these new ideas that I was having that were so counterintuitive. They seemed... Um, I was having a hard time getting my mind around it. And so I started writing just just to think through some of these ideas. And I kind of 
noticed that there were these two categories of intuitions about consciousness, those about consciousness itself, and then these other um, areas um, that I, the, the strongest examples are in, in free will or conscious will um, and the self, which neuroscience has a lot to say about now, and how those intuitions and, and in some sense, illusions are... Um, or informing our other intuitions about consciousness, and that maybe we're not thinking about it right. And so I begin, early on in the book, I begin with these two questions that for me have always been the beginning of the path of kind of breaking apart these intuitions, that these strong assumptions we have about consciousness. And the first one is, um, is there evidence that we can observe on the outside? Is there behavior we can witness that we can conclusively say is evidence of consciousness in that system. In a being or an object or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for me, I just start with the human brain because we know um, that, that that's a place where we, we know the answer is yes, but what can we see on the outside that will tell, that will be conclusive evidence for consciousness being present? And there? what is the intuition that you would characterize most of us as having that merits challenge on that? The answer, just merely the same. So I think we all have the same reflexive answer. Um, yes, which I is, can tell. Yes. Um, and we may, in fact, be right. And the, the point wasn't that I know we're wrong. The point was we feel, we all feel so strongly that if I walk into the room and my daughter has skinned her knee and she's crying and um, calling me, all of that behavior is absolute evidence of consciousness. There's no reason she'd be doing any of that. That makes no sense without an experience of pain and, and everything that she's going through. Um, and so I thought, we assume this is true, and this is one of the most basic um, assumptions we have about consciousness. Let's Let's just go there. Let's pick this apart. What is that behavior? And can we kind of turn this... Uh, into a bit of a science and see if maybe we're wrong. Yep. And so Susan Simard comes to mind, or yeah. Simard. Neither of us are quite sure where to put the accent. Yes. Um, but her work is pretty fascinating, and you explore it a little bit in the book. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, she has a great TED Talk on the subject of her work on intertree communication, um, the mycorrhizal no networks, which are fungal networks under the ground in, in forests um, where trees are, are communicating with each other. Um, and most intuitions would be the trees are not conscious. Yes. Most people would intuit that. Yes, and yeah. actually that is why I bring it up in the book, not because I think plants or trees are conscious. I bring up, um, I give a lot of examples of plant behavior because I think it's incredibly interesting to look at because we assume they're not conscious. Um, and a lot of the behaviors and the mechanisms behind the behaviors are much more similar to human and animal behaviors than I realized. Um, and when you start to get more specific about the behaviors you want to name that could be evidence of consciousness, you find very similar um, behaviors in plants and trees. So talk about something yeah. like these mycorrhizal networks, which are right. crazy. Yeah. Um, so these are networks by which, uh, you know, a, a lot of communication happens. Um, she was studying specifically um, the transfer of carbon um, between different species, and it turned out that they were complete, they were interdependent on each other. It was Douglas fir and something else. Yeah, something yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so at the t 
times of the year when the Douglas fir needed more carbon, the this other species, it's allied species to me, was, was sharing with it. Yeah. Yes, was was giving more carbon, and it was sending back more carbon at times when it when it was leafless and didn't need as much. Um, there are also interesting things um, about the trees recognizing the kin trees that came from their seedlings. Um, so they were giving more carbon to the trees that they were related to than the neighboring trees that are surrounding them in the same forest. They were able to tell through these networks um, which were their kin. And so they were they were delivering more carbon. They were also delivering defense signals to their kin and not to other Warnings trees. about there's an infection here, that yes. kind of thing. And also not crowding the roots of their kin, yes. sort of favoring Make, them. And then there are room. the um, mother trees, right? Yeah. Well, she calls them the mother trees. Yeah. yeah. That are particularly empathic and supportive of... of yes. Uh, yeah. Right. And so what's, what's intriguing is you look at that and whether you conclude, I mean, this is how I felt when I read yeah. that and when I saw Susan's, Susan's work online, whether you conclude from that, oh my God, plants are conscious after all, which is an incredibly challenging thought, or you conclude from that, wow, I know plants aren't conscious, but apparently very conscious-like activity can unfold in something that I deem to be unconscious. Either way, it's a really intriguing issue to wrestle with and expose yes. yourself to. Yeah, and it definitely starts to shake up your assumptions and intuitions. Yeah. Um, and again, my, my point in the book was the latter. Um, I mean, whether or not they are conscious, I think it's easy for us to to have intuitions that they're not, right? So despite what, what ends up being true, um, if we assume plants are not conscious, there are some very elaborate behaviors and similar behaviors and behaviors that... Um, mechanistically are are also similar so the the cell changes that lead to electrical firing um, in plants is similar to what's happening in our brains um, we even share a gene um, with plants that um, enables them to determine whether in the light they're in the light or the dark um, and these are it's a gene that's responsible for for many more elaborate things in us um, relating to circadian rhythms, but but the origin is the same, and it's a gene that's responsible for an organism's ability to determine light from dark. And then there's some chilling examples in us humans where people would have concluded over most of human history, person X is unconscious, but indeed they've been conscious. And yeah. I, you know, locked-in yeah. syndrome is a, is a terrifying one. Um, and you talk about the diving bell and the butterfly. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is on the other side of that. I thought it was interesting um, just in the service of, of messing with our intuitions more. Um, even if we can conclusively decide their, beha- their behaviors that are evidence of consciousness, which, of course, we can't yet, um, we know that they're not necessary for consciousness. So we know that it's possible to have no behavior like anything we would use as an example of consciousness and there still be a full experience um, as full as the experience you and I are having right now um, in someone who's completely incapable of communicating um, or exhibiting any any behavior someone who's, who's paralyzed and this is a condition called locked in syndrome um, which many people now know about and was made famous by um, this writer who wrote this beautiful this beautiful book about it because he was able he he his caretakers noticed that he was able to have some control over one eyelid um and it's miraculous that they were able to to decipher this and some people with locked in syndrome have no mobility at all but um this uh 
this phenomenon became pe- the scientists became aware of it because there were people like like him who were able to actually develop a method by which they could communicate with these blinks um, representing different letters and spelling out words and um, he was having a full a full life. He wrote a book into I think you said two hundred thousand blinks. Two hundred thousand blinks. Yeah. yeah, and it is a really it's it's not a long book. I mean, under the circumstances, we can understand that. Um, but it is a very poetic book, and you know, just the thought of somebody who was completely locked in and showing, other than this tiny tiny twitch, no sign of consciousness, being able to write an entire book. Um, and then there's, I mean, I hate to bring this up, but anesthesia awareness. I'm all the, I'm even less interested in surgery than I ever have been before. <laughs> Me um, too. Yeah. Ruin everybody's <laughs> by, by talking about how common this is too. Yeah. Um, so anesthesia awareness, I forget what percentage of procedures this happens in. And it can happen in a, in a range of ways, some yeah. less horrific than others, but in the most horrific version, um, the paralysis component um, of the anesthesia works and the um, component that is supposed to make you unconscious either doesn't work or it wears off um, before it's supposed to. And so the person becomes fully conscious, as conscious as as, um, you and I are now, um, while they're in the middle of a a procedure. No outward signs of it. No, and they're they're paralyzed. Um, And most people are completely traumatized. So that is intuition number one that you wrestle with quite a bit um, in the book of is, you know, we feel that there is self-evident external behavior that manifests consciousness. And we can tell that shoe ain't conscious, that tree ain't conscious, that kid is, Mm -hmm. that anesthetized person is not. And that can all be wrong. Now, the other one is is conscious doing something? Am I, am I right. articulating it right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, what is that's, that intuition? That's usually how I how I describe it. Um, so, yeah. So, this other intuition, um, or this other question that I ask in the beginning of the book is: Is consciousness doing something? Is it serving a function? And again, the reflexive answer we all have is absolutely it is, um, and that's in everything from. Um, motivating my behavior to thinking through um, something as simple as planning my day today, getting on an airplane, packing my suitcase, all of these these thought processes, um, I feel very strongly that my consciousness is the thing driving all of that, that I couldn't do any of that without it. Um, but it's not, the enabler not just, of that. Yeah, yeah, but not just that I couldn't do it without it, but that it is actually the thing initiating a lot of my behavior, um, if not most of my, at least my intentional behavior, um, my purposeful behavior, the behaviors with strong you know, that have a strong emotion behind them. Um, and I think this is a very interesting one to challenge too. And this is one that has some neuroscience to back up um, the challenges because there are many cases, uh, if not most cases, um, but many cases that we know of where consciousness is kind of the last thing to happen, where there are all these unconscious processes, um, including making a conscious decision that can be detected at the level of the brain before the person feels they made a conscious decision. And some of this work happened right here in San Francisco. Benjamin Libet, right, was UCSF, I think? Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's been more current work. So, so yeah. his work um, was with EEG and was, was about motor movements, um, and it's definitely... Um, um, been disputed, especially because it was about motor movements. People wondered, 
um, whether that applied to more complex decision making. Um, but there have since been studies. There's one that I know of in 2011, one in 2013. Um, one was I'm not sure if we spoke about this yet, actually, but um, the most recent one was in an, was in F- fMRI. Um, so they were tracking blood flow, um, and this is one we did we did speak about. I think when they were um, They'd given the subjects the task of either adding or subtracting two numbers, mm-hmm. um, and they were able to see... The subject got to choose. They yes. were given two numbers, Sorry. and the subject got to choose, right? Whether, yes. whether, whether they, they were going to add. add or subtract them. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they're able to pinpoint kind of on this clock that they're watching in the fMRI scanner um, when they make that decision. So and I decided at this moment that I'm going to add them, and then they add them. Yes. Um, but you could have chosen to subtract them, and yeah. that, that choice is left to you, and you, you mark the point at which you make that decision. Um, they could reliably detect through um, blood flow, through the fMRI, um, when the person, not only what the person was going to choose to do, but when they would make that decision. When they made that decision, and it was how far in advance? I think it was up to four seconds. Yeah, so basically that meant that the conscious self, which thought it had decided, I'm going to add right now... Stuff was going on four seconds before that, yes. in a sense, yes. led to that decision or prefigured that decision. Yes, and there are other areas um, where it, it's just you know time and time again where that is that is has been even more reliable and been studied more where we know many unconscious processes happen before we're made aware of what's happening. And bi- binding is one of these examples that. Um, David Eagleman talks about a lot, um, and this has to do with the timing of, of events in the world. And um, he he says this very eloquently, which I, I probably will have to paraphrase. <laughs> but he he essentially says that our present moment experience is actually lagging behind the physical world, um, and this is because all of the sensory inputs um, to our to our body and to our brains um, they arrive at our body at different times. So sound moves at a different um, speed than light, and um, when something touches our hand, I, I use the example in my book of playing tennis. If you hit, if you hit a ball, um, when you hit the ball with the racket, you have an experience of feeling it and seeing it and hearing it all at the same of time. Simultaneity of those things, but yes, those signals do not arrive at the brain at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so the, this process of binding happens subconsciously, and then our experience of this this singular present moment event comes into consciousness kind of at the end. Um, it's almost the last thing to happen. So this this intuition that consciousness is the thing driving our behavior um, is, is definitely inaccurate. Yeah, it, this feels like these could be like those initial pieces of evidence that Archimedes, again, or whoever it was, started wrestling with in challenging like, well, wait a second, if the earth is flat, as I'm sure it is, then why is this sort of angular momentum, apparent angular momentum of the sun. This this is like those first couple pieces of evidence, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Because they definitely do violence yes. to the intuition that I am choosing to decide to add or subtract. Yeah. Or And, and yeah, the Eagleman stuff is really, really fascinating. Yeah, and all yeah. that stuff powerfully informs our intuitions and our assumptions about consciousness as well. Um, and yeah, that, that's where I think we, we're in this period of wrestling with intuitions that... Um, hopefully will lead us to, to deeper understanding at some point. But Yeah, one of the intriguing um, kind of pieces of evidence, uh, I mean, that undermines the sense of, of total agency is, um, this is an old one and kind of a chilling one, but Charles Whitman, 
um, who was notoriously the uh, the Texas Tower shooter way back in I think it was 1966. This was before this epidemic of of mass shootings really got going in this country. Um, and he was one of the first and, and better known ones. And he intuited... Before we knew much about the brain. Before we knew much at all about the brain, yes. And he had this overwhelming intuition that he was about to do something awful and it wasn't him that was doing it. And so he wrote these very touching suicide notes in which he he said he started by murdering family members in which he expressed his professed his love for them and said, please do an autopsy in my brain. I know something's wrong. And they, lo and behold, they did. And there was a tumor in his amygdala that it could have, you know, we didn't know enough about the brain then and perhaps not even to this day to have yeah. certitude yeah. that that was it. But that certainly seems to challenge, at least in that very immense case, a sense of agency. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a specific case which, I mean, that's a kind of a specific category of cases in which the person actually feels um, they're being controlled by something else. Right. Um, and that's a, but I, I do think it gives us some insight into even what we feel in our day-to-day lives in a, in a normal, healthy brain. Um, I think there, there's some version of that working at many levels. Yeah. And then the the other person that you'd pointed me to, I don't think this was in your book, but Kim Gorgans, um, who I think she had, she's in the, I think she works in the Colorado criminal justice system in some capacity. And she had determined that 50 to 80% of the people in the penal system, at least in the state of Colorado, had traumatic brain injury. It was, was it nationwide, but it was 50 to 80% had, had some level of, uh, of TBI, uh, generally from assault. Exactly. And the general population number is way, way, way under 5%. And so when you start challenging your intuitions about consciousness and free will and the level of agency that people have in these extreme scenarios, what does that do to our sense of culpability and you know, and punishment. Hmm. Sorry. <laughs> That's a big question. I know. I wrestle, I, with it. I, I wrestle with it a lot myself. That I, that I don't specifically address in my book. But no, I mean, these are, these are the types of ethical questions that, that these, this type of um, investigating leads to. Um, I think that, I mean, there, there are a couple ways to, for me to, there are a couple places I can take this. One is just that we know that our brains are creating this experience that we're having. At least we know enough about neuroscience to to understand, um, just enough about the human body to understand that our brains are these very complex systems that are giving rise to this experience that we're having. Um, Whether they seem to be, you know, faulty or or abnormal or irregular or not, um, that their entire conscious experience is, is... at least very closely related to what's happening in our brains. Um, And then we have this sense or this illusion, and I would call it a a false intuition, that we have a conscious will that is kind of in the form of a self. And so so these are are two illusions that I I talk about in my book. One is conscious will, and the other is the illusion of self. Um, and they're related. They're kind of like two sides of the same coin. Um, but the idea that there's some self, there's some me that stands outside of my brain. So, I mean, even in the example of feeling like, you know, something else is, is controlling me, 
um, it's still, it's all brain processing, right? So whether it's the type of brain processing we see in, in most brains or there's a tumor and the brain processing has been affected, um, it's not the intuition that we come into the world with, which is there's my brain processing and then, and I, I mean, I even knowing all that I know still feel this very strongly in this moment, right? That there's me and that almost the intuition is almost that that me stands outside of the physical world. Um, and that that is some combination of the illusion of self, which actually we now know can be tampered with as well. So um, we think this is, or neuroscientists um, believe this has something to do with a part of the brain called the default mode network, um, which can be quieted both by psychedelic use and by... Um, um, meditation practice. And so many people have had the experience of being a fully conscious um, person without having this experience of being a self, that the, it's possible to have consciousness without this illusion of self. Um, and so there's definitely evidence for the fact that that is an illusion, and that illusion of self is closely related to the illusion of conscious will, the idea that consciousness is the thing that's creating the will, and I think all, when we when we start to pick about sorry <laughs> when we start to pick apart all of these things, it gives us a very different way of looking at consciousness, and I think can make us more open to um, other possibilities and other ways of looking at it. Um, and specifically in my book, I I, I review um, this category of theories called panpsychism which we always laugh about is, is an unfortunate name. It's got a bit of a branding issue, <laughs> right. yeah. Um, but, you know, generally, um, panpsychism is a category of theories that um, describe consciousness as being a more fundamental feature of the universe. And so, you know, all of these intuitions that we've been talking about have led us to believe that consciousness is a result of extremely complex processing. It's a result of, of brains, which are the most complex um, systems in, that we know of in the universe. Um, and I think it's interesting, even though it sounds crazy, even to me still, and I'm not convinced of this at all, but I think we should definitely be open to it. Um, it's possible that consciousness doesn't arise out of complex processing and as in fact something more fundamental and so this kind of umbrella term of panpsychism is these category of category of theories um, which postulate that consciousness um, is is a component of all matter um, potentially down to the level of, of atoms um, and I should say I always like to say when when this topic comes up that, no theory under panpsychism is ever postulating. We have to be careful to, conf to not confuse consciousness with complex thought. So these theories are never postulating that um, an atom or a rock has thoughts or intentions or is you know anything like if it entails some form of consciousness, some form of awareness, some intrinsic property of awareness, it would be something completely unimaginable to us because our experience of consciousness is related to this very complex processing which we do not imagine exists yeah it's it's interesting when we when you start challenging the question of free will particularly with the things that are being done in, in imaging studies like fMRI in particular because um, EEG has got very good time resolution but it has it has very poor 
spatial resolution. It's hard to know where something is emitting from the brain in that. But both of these sets of imaging studies are pointing toward the very distinct possibility that the conscious system is explaining after the fact their decision to do X or Y. You know, they're, they're saying, oh, I decided to subtra- subtract at that moment because I just felt like in a negative mood or whatever it is. But it turns out that that was prefigured by things that were going on four seconds before. If you start thinking, well, maybe I'm just along for the ride and I'm kind of narrating my story after the fact, um, and you get to that question that you ask, is conscious, quote unquote, consciousness, quote unquote, doing anything? When I, when I first started hearing that set of, set of thoughts some years ago, my intuitive rebuttal to it was like, no, wait a second, you know, we're products of evolution. And evolution is a brutal struggle for survival, and the currency of survival, one of several, but a very important one, is calories. And calories are unbelievably expensive when you're evolving on the savanna. You risk your life to go out and gather them. You might be devoured by something else. You risk your life getting your offspring calories so that they can live. And anything that squanders calories is is simply not going to be evolutionarily successful. And our brains are calorie furnaces. And the main mysterious thing that emits from those brains seems to be consciousness. What consciousness certainly seems to be doing in a traditional view of free will is allowing me to do this and decide upon that to quote Big Jagger. (laughs) And um, that was a satisfaction. (laughs) Sorry. sorry. Um, And therefore, if I've got this thing that's burning 20% of my calories and it clearly is doing this thing, I don't know how consciousness could simply be along for the ride. It's got to be doing something. This answers that. If, in fact, panpsychism turns out to be true, and it is a fundamental field or some element of reality, then you're kind of getting it for free. Right. And you don't have to make this cost. metabolic argument anymore. Right. Yeah. Which is intriguing. Yeah. 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 No, and there are a lot of um, intriguing paths of thought that many people have gone down. And actually, in, in writing this book and researching this book, I was very surprised to discover that many mainstream, well-respected scientists um, have considered these types of theories, have thought about them on their own without even really knowing anything about panpsychism. Um, it's, some, it, it's something that I think is a natural possibility you arrive at when you spend 15 years <laughs> thinking about the subject. Yeah. Um, no matter how... And it, you know, again, I think most of us who, who are open to these theories... They really do sound crazy. There's a there's a title of an article that I love that I quoted in my book. Um, Panpsychism is crazy, but it's also most probably true, um, and that's you know that's often how I feel about it. That's how I feel about the round world theory. <laughs> right. I'm almost convinced <laughs> at this crazy. point, having been to Australia and back, I'm um, almost convinced of this right. radical violation <laughs> of my intuitions. Um, one of the really intriguing things that you talk about, and just one of the most intriguing things in the annals of psychiatry are the split brain experiments, because that is a really, really vivid illustration of the possibility that oftentimes we're retroactively narrating or inferring what we were thinking when we did something. Yeah, yeah. Do you care to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, the, the interpreter is, yes. is the name for this, this term. Um, one thing I was just going to say, though, that I didn't want to leave out, um, just because it's, it's part of now my motivation for writing this book and and getting this information out there is when I realized that there were so many scientists, um, again, serious 
well-respected mainstream scientists who were open to these different ways of thinking about consciousness. Um, but I found they were unwilling to express their views publicly. Um, this is something that always gets to me when I think there's a subject, especially a scientific subject that's taboo. Um, I think any, any legitimate idea is, 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 has to be worth exploring, especially on a topic um, that we've been stuck on for so long. And so, um, yeah, it just, I just wanted to mention that it became, it became a huge motivation for me to... You found all these panpsychism curious scientists. <laughs> I need, we definitely need They're a new They're deeply word. in the closet. <laughs> and, and how much of it is just simply the, the word panpsychism? It might, it might be the whole problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, so to answer your question about um, split brain research... So Michael Gazzaniga and Roger Sperry were, were the first and, and still um, most famous uh, neuroscientists to conduct um, this research on split-brain patients. And uh, how, do you think we should explain? Yeah, I don't, just to, so people don't worry that they weren't actually cutting people's brains in half for the purposes of the experiment. But these were people whose um, – what's called the corpus callosum – which joins the two hemispheres of the brain. And it's a pretty narrow channel in the center of the brain. It's, it's very small in relationship of the, uh, to the brain itself. And in, um, back in the 60s and, and into the 70s, when there were very far fewer treatments uh, for epilepsy, in certain people who had a terrible epileptic conditions... They were having grand mal seizures where the seizures were, were spreading. Precisely. Them. They found that severing the corpus callosum would stop the storm from spreading. So if the storm started brewing up that would lead to a seizure, let's say in the right hemisphere of the brain, by severing the corpus callosum, it couldn't cross over to the left side of the brain. And it had a radically positive transformative impact on hundreds, maybe even thousands of lives. It became a fairly standard procedure for people in a pretty desperate state um, for a period of 10 or 15 or 20 years until the medications. But So having this population of people whose corpus callosum had been severed for good reasons as opposed yeah, to just like, right. let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about what happened. Um, so, yeah, so there was a range of things that happened. And there were also, um, not all the surgeries were exactly the same, but some people had didn't have to have their brains completely split, but there are some number of people where there there's literally no more communication between the two halves of the brain or the two hemispheres of the brain. And... Um, so it, it seems from – should I talk about the interpreter first? Yeah. Okay. Well, however you want to do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, maybe I'll just give the, the basic, the basic um, experience that these scientists were witnessing um, was that it's um, – splitting the brain in this way seemed to actually be splitting the, the person or their consciousness um, and their awareness in two – into two objectively independent points. Yes, viewpoints. yes. Yeah. Um, so almost as if, um, you know, conjoined twins um, is similar to a situation like that, where it's like two people living in the same body. Um, and they were able to do research because um, there are many inputs to the nervous system that only go, that go to the right or to the left hemisphere that the other hemisphere will not have access to um, because it can't cross Um it can't cross over through the corpus callosum. So um, each hand is controlled by the opposite hemisphere. Um, the visual field is split in two and everything in the right visual field goes to the left hemisphere and vice versa. Um, so they would do these these studies. Um, one, one I have an example of in my book where they would show um, the patient's right hemisphere the word key. 
So only the right hemisphere saw the word key. Um, now, for most people, not all people, but for most people, um, the center of, of communication of spoken language is in the left hemisphere. Um, this gets a little confusing, but I'll <laughs> try to map it out. So the right hemisphere has seen the word key. Um, it's only been projected to the left to the left visual field. When they would ask the patient, what word did you just see? They would respond, I didn't see anything, because the speaking hemisphere is located, the, the speaking center is located in the left hemisphere. So the, the only consciousness in there that that was able to speak would say, I saw nothing. Did because, not see the thing. Because yeah. the left hemisphere, oh, sorry, yes, the left hemisphere had not seen anything. Then if they ask the subject to reach out, there's a, you know, there's, different objects on the table, a ball, a key, a coin, um, reach out and grab the object of the, the word you just saw, the subject will reach out with their left hand, which is controlled by the right hemisphere, which, caught the which information. saw the information and grabbed the key. And reliably grabbed the key. And reliably, yeah. and this is repeated time and time again. Um, and and different, different, there are different ways of interrogating the different hemispheres, but they just, it was clear that they were receiving different information. The information was not being shared, and there were two um, separate uh, islands of consciousness. But then the cool thing is, well, I don't know if this is cool necessarily, <laughs> but the wow factor to me was then you would ask the speaking part, which was the part of the brain that denied knowing what, was, what the word was, but then had the experience of successfully picking up a key, they would then ask the interpreter, why did you just pick up that key? And they'd yes. have an answer. Right. They'd infer so, why they had done it. Yes. So they, so Gazanica and there was another, Ledoux, Joseph Ledoux, um, came up with this term, the interpreter, to explain. So the, the speaking left hemisphere, it turns out, when it doesn't understand why the the body is responding in the way that it is, will kind of instantaneously have a reason. So the, there's um, there's a great example of the experimenters telling the the patient. Um, I guess they must have. I'm not sure how they delivered this information. Probably uh, again on a screen to the to the left visual field. Um, get up and walk to the other side of the room. And so the person got up and started walking. And then they ask him why did you get up and start walking now this is the left speaking hemisphere which did not see the command will instantaneously and it, it seems that they actually believe it it's not that they're lying or they think they're making something up they they will say oh i was thirsty and i'm getting a glass of water with a full sense of agency with a full yes. sense of i i elected I believe to do this. that's why yeah um, and there are even there are things you can see um in in healthy brains with subliminal messaging as well where your you can your behavior can be affected i mean it's much it's much less severe than in the case of this yeah. interpreter but um where yeah your your decisions and your actions can be affected by subliminal um, messaging where you you have a reason why you did something when in fact you were being affected by something that you were not conscious of. And you retroactively come up with a very consistent narrative that puts your hands firmly on the wheel. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess hypnosis, this is another thing that will happen with people who have undergone hypnosis and are, are undertaking something on a suggestion that they don't realize is a cue or something like that. They also seem to reliably have a narrative in which 
they are the agent as oh, opposed interesting. to. I don't actually know. I think know about so. Maybe that. I've just watched too much Darren Brown, but um, I'm pretty. I'm no, pretty but sure no, about it's that an interesting one. phenomenon. It's interesting to me that some people are susceptible to it and some people aren't. I know also. it I is intriguing. Very interesting. It is really intriguing. Now, within the realm of of panpsychism, with those who are brave enough to mm-hmm. boldly proclaim themselves panpsychists, um, there are two fundamentally different schools of thought about it, right? Yes. Um, I mean, I think everyone kind of has their own their own flavor of it, but it, yeah. It just generally um, breaks down to um, those who believe it's that some level of information processing is required. Um, and David Chalmers is, is a philosopher who's um, famously talked about all, all of these ideas, actually, and, and heavily influenced my thinking on it. Um, he, he writes about whether a thermostat might be conscious. It's kind of the most basic information processing. It's like moving in one direction or another. Um, and many philosophers kind of go that path of information processing being necessary. That makes less sense to me, and I tend to when when I contemplate and when I'm when I'm open to um, it, yeah. yeah, open yeah. to um, imagining if some version of this is possible. What makes more sense to me is that it's more fundamental than that. Um, the hard problem, which we haven't defined yet yeah, in this talk, conversation, yeah. but yeah. Speaking of Chalmers, actually. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So the hard problem is a term that came from David Chalmers, although um, the problem he's referring to has existed for a very long time. Longer than Chalmers himself. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and it is really what I refer to as the mystery of consciousness. And it is essentially, why is it that this universe made up of all of this non-conscious material, that all of these atoms swirling around in the universe eventually get configured in such a way, there's some special way they get configured, that suddenly um, that very matter, those atoms configured in this way, have an experience from the inside. They have an experience of being that matter. Why, why would that happen? Given that that matter is no different than moon dust, the sun... Um, a rock, etc. Right, that we are essentially all the same ingredients, but somehow you put the atoms in a certain way, and then there's this new property that arises where suddenly the matter has an experience of being that matter. Um, and David Chalmers referred to this as the hard problem of consciousness, um, as opposed to what he's, um, you know, quote unquote, calls the easy problems, which is a joke because <laughs> nothing's easy about it. <laughs> nothing's yeah. easy about neuroscience, um, and there's so little that we we know, and so much we have to learn. Um, but the easier problems would be correlating certain experiences with states of the brain, yeah. um, or understanding how senses are manifesting and so forth. Yes, yeah. yeah I interviewed um, a, a brilliant um, neuroscientist at Stanford for my podcast named uh, E.J. Chichilnisky. And um, he's doing this incredible work with retinal prosthetics. And there turns out to be 20 different neuron types, predominantly, you know, 20 different neuron types in the retina that communicate all the information back into the brain. And what he's trying to do is create a prosthetic that will allow blind folks to get some modicum of sight. And he's starting to crack the neural code. Like, how does a basket cell versus a parasol cell send its signals back into the brain? That would be one of the easy problems, jokingly. But it it is tractable. Yeah. Because there's 20 neuron types, whereas in the brain, we we don't even know how many neuron types are in the brain. Um, so yeah, so that is the hard. But yeah, but yeah. the hard problem is why any of that processing would have an experience associated with it. And it, it is right? a much, we, much. Deeper. We can imagine creating um, artificial intelligence, some some robot in the future that could do all of that visual processing, 
um, without any consciousness, without an experience from the inside. And so yeah. it's why, why any collection of matter, why any processing has an experience. And so, um, yeah, in the category of, of panpsychism, there are theories um, that postulate that somehow some level of information processing gives rise to it. And and the the other type of theory, which is the one that that's, makes more sense to me, is that it's if it is fundamental, it is it's more fundamental than that, and somehow arises in fluctuations in a field, so that matter itself actually has this other intrinsic property. Um, and in that in that school of thought, which is not information processing, then um, the logic would take you all the way down to the atomic the atomic or even subatomic level. There would be an experience of consciousness. There would be something that it's like to be an atom or an electron. Right. And again... <laughs> they don't have social lives. They don't, it's a different like, kind of consciousness nothing like human. Us. Yeah. And yeah. so the idea is that consciousness is, is somehow an intrinsic property of matter. And so wherever there is matter, it entails some level of experience. Um, again, in, in an atom or, or some, some inanimate object, it would be such a basic form of experience it doesn't it practically doesn't relate to our experience at all and you wouldn't expect it to because brains again are these very complex structures that have all this complex processing and um the same way you wouldn't expect your your shoe to write an opera you know you wouldn't expect it to have any experience remotely resembling the experience that that you and I have but that some very minimal um something yeah. that there's actually something it's like the lights are on um wherever matter is present that that's part part of and then there's this um one of the sort of root issues within panpsychism and a, and a rebuttal to it um is the combination problem yeah. what is the combination problem um so yeah the combination problem is a problem in, in philosophy and panpsychism of when contemplating panpsychism it's the question of if all matter entails consciousness, or if individual atoms, even individual cells, um, have a conscious experience, how is it that when those cells come together and those atoms come together to form something like a human being and a human mind, um, how do those experiences combine? How do they fuse into a more complex consciousness? Yes, yeah. and and also then what would happen to those individual consciousnesses? Do yeah. they how, how do they disappear and um, I I don't actually see this as a problem. Um, and so in my own thinking, it doesn't really get in the way for me. But it, it is the biggest obstacle for many philosophers who are kind of willing to go there, that this is the one thing that gets in the way. Um, and again, I actually think the illusion of self is holding us back here and is making it difficult for us to think creatively about it because our experience of consciousness is so entwined with this experience of self um, that we think about all consciousness as entailing self. And I think that's where the combination problem comes in. Um, given that you're more open to questioning your intuitions and you've thought about them, uh, about consciousness, and you've thought about them much more rigorously than most of us, um, I think it'd be interesting to hear how far down you think it goes in inanimate objects. Um, I have full conviction that dogs and dolphins are conscious. Um, I'm not so sure about ants. Right. 
And I'm pretty sure that bacteria are not conscious in a, any way that I would think about it. Where do your intuitions go when we go up and down and across species? Yeah, it's interesting. This just reminded me of um, David Krakauer was recently interviewed. Um, and he, I was surprised to hear him say he thought it's entirely possible that bacteria are conscious. Um, so there's... I couldn't rule it out. Another smart person. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't rule it out. Um, but that, that's objects. getting close to yeah. panpsychism, it is, right? It is. Um, my intuitions go basically follow the brain, um, which again I don't think are necessarily useful at all. Um, but yeah, it's funny. People people usually get down to insects, so that's where their intuitions start to disagree. Um, I just feel like bees and ants and worms having some experience it seems to me that they are but again i don't think our intuitions are are so useful here <laughs> but you rule out starfish right you you you, you draw the line at starfish yeah they, i mean now i didn't know, now I know this from a prior so. conversation because they don't i didn't know this they don't have a brain right right yeah and which is funny to me yeah, I've already no, shared i mean this, they're, they're yeah. kind of like plants in a sense and i think most neuroscientists assume um that their behavior is very much like plant behavior and we assume it does not entail experience yeah yeah and it, what is your intuition about plants? Because I, I saw Susan Simard's work, and it, it really, utterly challenged my own sense I, of... I definitely have become more open, but I, I mean, my intuition is that they're not conscious, but I think <laughs> we, we could be wrong. And it's, it's very interesting, you know, it's, we, it used to be that I would watch the, um, the time-lapse photography and think, huh, you know, like the, it's pretty interesting, but you feel like you're kind of being messed with, that it's not really showing you a, a real version of, of something that's going on. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's definitely hard to rule it out. The more you understand about these processes, um, yeah, it's it's hard to rule it out, although I still my intuitions still tell me that they're not. Um, but again, I think our intuitions might more be speaking to complex thought and brains and intentions and all these things we experience as human beings. And I think if there's some level of consciousness present in plants, it is nothing. I mean, it's, they, they are not constructed like brains, and so we wouldn't expect it to feel like a brain. My last question, um, which in all of our conversations, both in public and non-public, I haven't asked you, um, what next now? You've, you've oh. written this book. You've planted a flag. Um, I'm you're, still you're challenging here. <laughs> intuitions. Of course, you're still here in the far side of publication, yeah. which is almost impossible as an author myself to envision. And now, all of a sudden, you find yourself on the other side. Yeah. So, do you uh, are you interested in writing further about this? Do you see yourself writing more books about this? Maybe. Yeah. Um, I actually don't feel like I'm on the other side of it yet. I still feel like I'm you're kind I'm of very in this liminal in zone. Yeah. You really are. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have become, I'll just, I mean, I haven't answered this question before, but I've become increasingly interested in time. And actually my work, I, I did, um, I worked on a book about time. The neuroscientist wrote, Dean Buonamano wrote this book called um, Our Our Brain is a Time Machine or Your Brain is a Time Machine. Um, it was the second book of his that, that, I, that I worked on, but this was specifically about time and how the brain processes time. And the more I think about consciousness and have these conversations, time keeps coming up as a relevant point that I think is innately fascinating. And that way you, you cited David Eagleman's um, work on binding. That's another one of those things that kind of violates the sense of agency because he does end up demonstrating pretty, pers- I mean, very persuasively that we do live quite a number of microseconds in the past. 
in order to bind all these senses together and have a sense of simultaneity, which yeah. we absolutely need to survive. Yeah. And when you start think, looking at reaction times, again, a necessity of survival out in the wild, you know, with our ancestors, um, you know, certain things do need, certain reactions would need and absolutely do precede conscious awareness. You know, the amygdala response famously mm-hmm. precedes right. conscious awareness. We'll, we'll be startled and start taking action before we have any notion of it. And again, if it, it is, I, I do love the way that you started your book with that, you know, kind of grappling with gravity and trying to imagine the roundness of the world. It, it's it's such an apt way to enter this discussion because that's not something that really, I, I imagine anybody in this room would, would challenge the roundness of the world, but what violates our intuitions more? And we're starting to get these glimmers of evidence that are equally vehement in, intuitions about identity and agency and so forth are off in some manner. Again, Eagleman, and by the way, anybody who's interested in Eagleman stuff, the best talk I've seen him give, you got to dig for it a little bit, but he gave it at uh, the Long Now, not at their normal um, seminars, uh, but at the, they had they had a summit once, and it was sort of like a, a full day event. And he was the keynote. And if you dig hard on the Long Now site, you can find that talk, and it's really really no, interesting. Rumination on time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Carlo Ravelli's new book is, yeah. is about time. We were just talking about it. Um, he. Um, he he does this interesting thing where his book is about time. He ends on consciousness, and one thing he talks about, which is something that uh, that I think about a lot, is consciousness. The one thing we can't imagine consciousness without is time. So I actually give a, a little bit of a guided visualization in the beginning of one of the chapters in my book. Um, where I talk about, where I I try to get the reader to imagine very minimal forms of consciousness. Um, So you can kind of, you can imagine consciousness without sight, without hearing, without touch. You can kind of get rid of all these inputs. And and he makes this very interesting point very beautifully towards the end of his book that um, you can't imagine consciousness without time. Yeah, it's true. All right. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>